So you've got this really kind of really wonky style product innovation. You're able to test it with consumers super quickly, and then you're able to build brands that speak to people in a targeted and unique way. And I think that that's the recipe for building products that end up having people love them. That's Tim, the co-founder of Vow, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. In this episode, we'll be speaking with the team at Vow, the company that's revolutionizing cuisine by tapping into the vast biosphere of potential foods that humanity has been unable to sustainably farm. Through cultured meat, they're removing this limitation and paving the way for the third agricultural revolution, one that is ethical, abundant, and just simply delicious. Since we last spoke with Val more than 12 months ago, their team has more than doubled and they've continued to amaze by pushing through technical challenges with stunning speed. We kick off this episode by speaking with Ellen. She helped scale Lemonade to IPO and now she's the head of operations at Val. She speaks with us about scaling teams and how she's seen values, teamwork, and technology to turn people into superhumans. Then we'll chat with the founders, George and Tim, to discover how they're building a dream team of technical and non-technical talent, their fresh approach to building product, and how the future of cultured meats is developing. And last, yet certainly not least, we'll speak with Samantha Wong. She'll tell us about how she's seen the team grow over the last two years, how she's thinking about the future of food and how the regulatory frameworks need to open up so we can become a net exporter, not a net importer of the next generation of food. And here's a little side note from me. It's an absolute myth. You need a warm introduction to raise funds for your startup. Blackbird has a get investment section on its website. No matter who you are, I'd love to see you share an application that services your vision and your hunger so we can help bring your ambition to life. I read every single pitch with immense care and I'd love to make the claim that the next best business story of our time came through a website application. And let me make this last point crystal clear. Nothing is too early. Whether you need 30K, 100K, 500K or a million dollars, Blackbird is here to help you embark on your company building journey. Okay, that's it from me. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Without further ado, here's Ellen Dinsmore. Let's kick it off. So more than three years at one of the fastest growing and most innovative insurance companies ever. Describe what it was like working there in New York. Yeah. So Lemonade, wow. It was a rocket ship. It was just an absolute adventure. <laughs> so I joined actually when the company was around the size Val is it now. So 35, 40 people oh. once I got there. I was totally bit by the startup bug. It was really amazing seeing the work and ideas that you came up with, seeing those come to life. I also got to be just part of a, an amazing team and learn from some really great leaders and, and to watch everything grow. So it was an absolutely fabulous experience. How many people were there when you left? Oh, there had to be close to 800, seven to 800. And I'm sure the company continues to grow now. So it, I still have a lot of very good friends there. So again, I consider it an awesome few years. The, the other thing that, 
that I would say, and it's not so much related to the actual work in day-to-day -day of Lemonade, but something else that if I reflect on it, was in a really important part of the experience for me, especially considering where I'm at now at VOW, is that I found that I genuinely enjoyed working with people from different countries. So Lemonade's actually headquartered in Israel. The founding team is from there. We had our office in New York. We opened one in Arizona. And then we also opened an office in the Netherlands. And so by the time I left, you had people across three continents, all different time zones with all very different working styles and cultures. And I really enjoyed it. And I found that you learned a lot and frankly benefited from all the different working styles, as opposed to just having one more homogenous group with a consistent way of working. And so I think particularly in a startup setting, I found that to be really exciting to make things fast paced and was just loads of fun. I mean, I can't even like begin to think about the, the, the excitement as the company went from 35, 40 people to 800. What were some of the scaling breaking points that you went through and maybe some of the lessons that you can share with us? Yeah, so there's two things that come to mind in terms of lessons and kind of reflections on it as I look back now. And the first is that I think Lemonade had a really interesting approach, which was not necessarily just let's automate everything. I think that's a really big catchphrase and kind of easy thing for people to fall into a trap of, of how do we just automate everything in a startup? And Lemonade was quite good at that. But what they also said was, how do we focus on scaling our raw human capabilities? And one of our founders, I remember he gave a talk where he said, we're trying to make our, our humans at Lemonade have these sort of superhuman exoskeletons. So it's not just how do we automate something, but how do we make ourselves as workers much more efficient? And so a really tactical example of how Lemonade did this really well was with our people who actually handled claims. We built the most amazing in-house system that allowed them to do you know, 100x the amount of work that an individual might have done at a more traditional insurance company. And so it wasn't that we were automating the human out of the process but it was that we were focused on making that person a superhuman and to give them that sort of tough exoskeleton to do their job even more efficiently. And I think there's some really important learnings that a lot of startups can take from that of how do you make people much more efficient in what they do? And I think Val is actually doing a really good job of that. The other reflection that I have is that I think it's really important to strike a good balance between what I would say is technical and kind of deep expertise and then maybe more functional or operational skills. And so another kind of specific example of how Lemonade did this is when we would launch a new product earlier on, there was a debate of, well, do we hire someone who's worked in auto insurance for 20 years and knows it inside and out? Or do we hire someone who's an operations guru and has launched new products at five different startups and knows that side of, of, of that really well? And what we found is that you need a bit of both. You can't really have one or the other. If you just have someone who knows the sort of technical industry expertise, you, you might lose a bit of the creativity and innovation that can come with someone who brings new skills to the table. But a lot of the things we're trying to innovate on are also quite complex. And so you need people who have deep knowledge of that and can bring it to the table. And I think both of those learnings are, are relevant, again, at a lot of companies, particularly Vow, I think, given the, the deep technical nature of what we do. And I think so far, they're also striking a really good balance with that here. I love that. And so you went from awesome insurance to alternative protein. How did you first hear of Vow and, and what inspired you to join? Yeah, it is. It, this is such a fun question. So uh, there's a couple of parts of it, which the first one I'll start with is how did I even hear about cultured meat? Because it's, yes, quite different from insurance. And then I'll talk more about Vow and what really caught my eye and, and what 
led me to move here to Australia from New York. Cultured Me itself, there's there's a really funny story behind this. So I actually first heard about it on my honeymoon. My partner and I went to Alaska, which we thought was a great idea and beautiful scenery, but lots of bears. <laughs> and so I spent an inordinate amount of time on my honeymoon actually hiding in a cabin reading. And I, I came across a book that was about cultured or clean meat. And it just blew my mind. You know, I, I was raised in a very Midwestern family where you ate meat at almost every meal. And so I, even as I've kind of grown up and you know now I'm vegetarian and been so for almost a decade I think I still realize that meat is part of our culture and our traditions and it just tastes good and so I've always had this mindset of how do we just make meat production more sustainable so when I read that book it, I just thought this is it this is the answer and this is something that I know I want to be a part of someday and so for lack of a better way to put it I became a troll of all cultured meat companies out there I started following them in the news, whether they were in the US or Israel or Australia, I was following all of them to see what they were up to and really to start to get a sense of when they might need someone with more kind of general business and operation skills like mine, given that a lot of them were earlier stage at that point in time. So that's kind of my first touch point with cultured meat. But then the second part of your question, which is why Val, so I came across them a year ago. And I would say there are a couple of things that really caught my attention about the company, despite the fact, I will admit, I had never set foot in Australia at that point and applied for this job in Sydney without having ever visited. Um, yeah, <laughs> so the, the couple of things that, that kind of, again, sparked my original interest was first their approach. And in some ways, actually, it reminded me of what I saw Lemonade do really well. How do we not just automate things, but how do we use technology to make people superhumans? And I think this is something Val does really well. They're using engineering to improve a lot of the work we do in the lab, not just only to automate things, but to help our scientists do things more quickly. And I think that's a culture and ethos, which is across the company, even at the small size we're at. And that was apparent pretty quickly from my initial conversations with the team here. The other is that their approach is just really forward thinking and clever. Every other company I looked into was saying, how do we make a chicken nugget? How do we make a cultured beef burger? And that's great. And I'm sure those companies will be successful. But I talked with Vow and they said, how can we create entirely new categories of meat? Why do we need to only recreate what's exist? And I think that's just so clever and years ahead of where a lot of those other companies are thinking. The other thing that I would flag, and this may sound overly mm. simplistic, but I really like the founders. Um, like it or not, I think especially at a small startup, founders have huge amounts of influence on the company, how it operates, and really what the culture of that company will become. And so to me, it was really important to find people who not only did I like working with them and I thought they were smart and good at what they did, but I liked them as people and thought they had good values. I really felt that way with the family whenever I talked to the people here at VOW. I really like George and Tim as humans and said these are two genuinely really good people who care a lot about what they do and they're humble and willing to learn. And I thought they would be quite successful at what they did. That's so interesting. And gosh, what a what an insightful honeymoon Very much so. on many different levels. <laughs> And so how do you think you would compare the first eight months at Lemonade and the first eight months at Val? Oh, that's an interesting one. So the, the biggest difference that comes to mind immediately is, this may be very objective, but the stage of the company is really different. When I joined Lemonade, they had a product that was live. Selling renters insurance in like three or four states. It's, it's small potatoes at that point, but 
there was something live, customers were reacting to it, and we had a lot of data that we were already able to start to capture and therefore iterate on and grow quite quickly from, I would say VOW is at a very different stage. We're, we're very much pre-revenue and haven't launched a product yet, and we're eagerly working towards that. And so I think for me, there's been this really big mindset shift where I've had to change a lot of the way I think and operate from, we don't have something live that we can get again, real-time feedback from and move really quickly. It's a lot more kind of deep long-term thinking about how to best prepare for that and how to structure a lot of things internally in the company to get us even to that first huge milestone. The other I would say is that I'm getting to do here is probably broader than what I did at Lemonade. And I'm really enjoying that. And I think that's probably the single biggest part of joining an early stage company that's so exciting. And that's that you get to just get your hands in everything. When I joined Lemonade, our business operations team, I, we had a more specific remit, even at an earlier stage. Whereas I would say at Vow operations is, is a bit of everything. We do recruiting to running the office day-to-day to to long-term planning, which we do in the form of OKRs. And I love that breadth of experience that I'm getting to wrap my arms around and learn really quickly from. So kind of the stage of company and then the extent and breadth of the work I've been able to touch are probably two of the things that might have been most different so far. Mm, So interesting. And so look, I know you're very modest and I don't want you to hold back here because I want the listeners who might be thinking about joining a startup think through your lens when you were making the decision, but what were some of the skills that you have or had where you thought you could add value and bring value um, to such a deeply technical company? In yeah, now, so or the, just more generally? I, I touched on this a bit, but I think when you look at an early stage company, kind of look at it and say okay this is a company trying to go from zero to one and one to ten and and then there's there's a lot of growth beyond that but i think at that earlier stage you bring so much value just by being a structured good problem solver who can learn new things quickly and that was actually something which I would kind of give kudos to my years in consulting, being a a really good training ground for where every few weeks you're tossed into something new and you, you have to learn a lot and kind of be a mini expert. And so I think at Lemonade, I saw that bringing that that problem solving skill set, but also having that kind of fresh perspective actually did bring a lot of value, even to something that could be highly, highly regulated, deeply technical. And so I think I, I looked at Vow and I think at large, the cultured meat industry is kind of rounding the corner. A lot of the companies are, are transitioning away from being pure R&D companies to being food and product companies that actually sell things to consumers. I think I recognize that's the point these companies are at. Therefore, these kind of problem-solving skills I bring and a willingness to dig into anything suddenly start to become a a bit more valuable. There's a a couple of things, maybe three come to mind in terms of skills that I think are really important to bring and some which I think would be very easy for someone actually to go out and say, I'm going to learn that so I can bring it to an early stage company. When I joined Lemonade, my first task was actually to learn SQL and to learn all things databases. And it became super useful. You got a bit more street cred when you give some recommendation or help someone with something and actually bring real data to back it up. And so I think that's a very easy thing to go out and learn the basics of that kind of, again, could take you from zero to one and make you much more useful with that. The other skill, which it's a soft skill, but I think it's a really important one. And I actually really tout my former manager, Elliot, for making me think of it as a skill and encouraging my teammates and I to all think of this is just bringing huge amounts of empathy 
I think in the type of work being in an operation setting, the majority of projects I do aren't for myself. It's not to improve the operations of operations. It's to help another team with something or it's to help someone else build a process or improve something they're doing. So I think consistently reminding yourself, what would this person be thinking? What would make their life a bit better? How can I work with them more efficiently? It is kind of feels like a soft skill, but I think it's a really important one that you can get in a lot of different business settings, but is hugely valuable, especially in operations at an early stage company. Love it. Thank you so much for your time. I wanted to start off with building teams. Today, the team is 39 strong. And the last time we spoke, it was about 15 people. When did you start needing to hire non-technical talent? Wow. Firstly, I can't believe we're only about 15 people when we last spoke. Uh, That feels like about several lifetimes ago now, and it was just over a year. I think last time we spoke, the team at 15 was pretty much all scientists, maybe one engineer other than Tim and I really being the only non-technical people in that group. And after we closed our seed round, there was a little bit of technical hiring we needed to do, especially on the engineering side. But we pretty quickly got to a point where when you get over about 15 to around 20, things just start to break and fall apart because things that you can just tell everyone because they all fit in a room, you now start to think about, need to think about process and how you communicate. Otherwise, everything just becomes so noisy and distracting and distressing for everyone, uh, for everyone on that team. It was around that point where things were just breaking around us because of all the added complexity and basically everything that we were doing and everything that we were dealing with that we made our first real non-technical hire with Ellen, who came and joined her as our head of ops. And she is someone who is absolutely incredible and irrationally organized and capable of taking on an absurd amount of work, which took a monstrous load off both Tim and I of things that we were really not very good at. Uh, and things that when we were doing them were just so suboptimal for others on the team that it had this incredible flow on effect. Uh, and it's one of those things that once we did it, we I certainly can't imagine life without Ellen and without having a professional operator around us to be building those processes and systems to make everyone else more efficient, more effective and enjoy being at Bow every day. Yeah, working with Ellen has been an eye-opening experience in so much that I think that you know we all grow up being taught that we have to fit a certain mold in terms of the way that we work. And so, you know, I've definitely spent the better part of a decade banging my head against the wall, trying to be extremely well-oiled in the way that I am operational. And it took me until working with Ellen to realize that it doesn't matter how much I bang my head. I am never going to be as good at this as you are. And I should really just get back to focusing on my strengths and really like bring in and work with people who are incredible at what they do like you. And so that was a hugely eye-opening experience and, and something we've been able to kind of, for me at least, when thinking about building out a, a product team, which is kind of the next move for us and something we've been working on a lot over the last year, I brought that philosophy in of going, well, what are the complementary strengths that need to happen here? And I, I wouldn't have been able to do that without having worked with someone who skews so heavy on operations like Ellen. She's amazing, isn't she? Like I just spoke with her and she's so insightful and her depth of experience is incredible from Lemonade. And it sort of leads me to my second question. And I'd love you both to describe what it's like running a deeply technical team and product without having any deep technical experience. So- Tim and I are both hardcore generalists. Like neither of us had any deep technical knowledge on anything. And I think hey, that- hey, hey, no. <laughs> Tim's like, no, that's not me. <laughs> absolutely right. Um, so neither of us, neither of us have any real deep technical knowledge on anything, which has meant the way we've contributed a lot of the uh, value in the early stages of our is through our own naivety and just asking why are things done like that? Why is this a convention that we're following? 
And sometimes there's really good reasons, but a lot of the time it's just a habit that's been picked up because that's how it was done in academia or that's how it's done in other organizations. And so some really, really basic things which seem completely normal if you've, you've sort of established your career in a field seemed completely outrageous to us and have formed the backbone of some of our more, I guess, powerful infrastructure and tools that we built. One from really early on is we were so outraged by the way microscope images were captured in the early days where often most labs just take a photo on a camera, stuck down the barrel of the microscope and upload it to Google Drive and just rename the files one at a time. That we, we decided we were going to build something better and built this incredibly poorly engineered proof of concept with a Raspberry Pi and a camera that was going down the barrel and a foot pedal and QR codes. And all of those modules have formed the basis of what is now a really sophisticated and high, through, high throughput automation platform that's been built by our engineering team, which does the same thing, but it uses robots basically for all of it. And we're able to capture tens of thousands of images and analyze them in really, really high throughput ways. But it was built on the same principles that Tim and I were able to see because we weren't scientists. And introducing that so early, it's become a real cultural cornerstone of VAL and how we operate. Yeah, and I think like something that's really important to remember with a company like Val, like we, we make food with stem cells, right? Like this is, this is breaking totally new ground. And so really what this needs is like deep levels of expertise across many different areas, which have never actually been brought together. Like there's, there's kind of the medical industry or there's the food industry, but the idea of bringing these things together hasn't happened before. And that requires us to be expert dot connectors. You know, we need to become the experts in knowing what pieces need to fit together in the future. And then our job really just becomes about finding really, really great people who can kind of see that vision and can work together extremely well. And so we don't have to become deep expertise or deep experts in, in, in really anything. We just need to be able to find great people who can work together to fulfill a vision. And, and ultimately, I think at the same time, we've learned a shitload. Like the capacity to learn when there is high stakes, high levels of interest, and then also access to people who are incredibly intelligent, like way smarter than we are, I think is given this perfect environment to be able to learn way faster than, than potentially other environments. That's incredible. And how have you taken that, that generalist approach to attracting both technical and non-technical talent? Our approach across both is absolutely identical. We've, from the very beginning, something we've been incredibly committed to is creating a really, really wonderful environment to work in. A lot of, especially technical people in the sciences come from very hierarchical and siloed environments. And so we've always set out to create a culture, uh, which is the type of place Tim and I would want to work, which is somewhere open, transparent, meritocratic, where the best ideas and the best people have the opportunities to succeed. And the other side for us, which is you know, immensely important, whoever we're hiring for, is we're working on a huge and very important mission, and that's to reinvent food to be both more delicious and desirable, as well as more sustainable. And if you present both of those things to a lot of people, whether they're a scientist, an operator, a product manager, or something else entirely, that's a pretty appealing combination. And that's the cornerstone of us for all of our hiring. And the other important addition to that is knowing what your brand is as a company like all of those different things that George just talked about, like being culture first and having that impactful mission, you, you really need to communicate what you stand for and then tell that story really, really well in your brand and all of the different pieces that touch it, whether that be podcasts like the one that we're doing now or, or different conferences that you're speaking at or the blog posts that your company presents because people are always looking. You know, for instance, I'm, I am incredibly surprised 
at how much of an impact Twitter specifically has made in the scientific community and our ability to hire scientific talent. Like James, our chief scientific officer, has really been heavy hitting on the Vow Twitter. And as a result, we've attracted so much talent that has said that they've come from directly from that channel and, and seeing what our company's like as it ran through there. With the last round of science hiring that we did, it was the first time we didn't do any paid placements for the jobs, like no seek or LinkedIn or anything like that. And we had the the biggest and the richest pipeline we've ever had in science with over 50 really, really high quality applicants. And it came with no paid advertising, which is, you know, it's a testament to James's reputation and the effort that he's put into our scientific communication as well. All of that was Twitter. That was really the only place we were, <laughs> we were advertising through. How do you think your backgrounds have helped shape the way you're hiring people? I think we were so hilariously naive when it came to hiring in the early days. We really, we didn't even know the basics. We went and sat down with a guy leading HubSpot in Australia or something like that. And basically said, hey, how do you hire? And he was like, right, first thing, you need to have a list of things that you're looking for and questions about those things. I'm like, oh, great, list of things and questions to ask, fantastic. So like pretty much everything that we've done, we've had to start from scratch and learn it on, like as we've, went, as we've gone through it, we've made a heap of mistakes and we've gotten much better at hiring and screening people through those mistakes. And you know, if we think about it is how do we attract people to apply? How do we screen for the best people? And then how do we give them their, the amazing experience once they start? We've done a lot. We've learned a lot about the amazing experience. We're getting better and better at screening. And now we're putting more effort into getting people attracted to VOW and applying to VOW in the first place. I wouldn't say that we were, we were terrible off, like straight off the bat. Like what we'd seen, you know, I jokingly said that we've seen what not to do, but that's actually a really powerful lever to be pulling when you're thinking about hiring. And I think that from the get-go, our hiring processes were pretty pretty solid and allowed us to kind of screen lots of people and get an idea for it. But there was a lot of focus on culture and how you would fit culturally you know one of the examples is i i had worked alongside this company called thoughtworks and one of the things that they did in their process was everyone who gets interviewed would have to meet with two random people from the company and if either of those people said no i couldn't work with them every single day then they don't get the job and we kind of adapted that and, and brought similar things in here but you know as a result like this that's been our number one differentiator and a number one strength from the beginning is having a culture where people just genuinely look out for each other and really like each other and so while we started to iron out the other things the cultural element of it was really strong from the beginning the process has been really really important for us and it's the the basis of how we hire now but we also need to know when to go outside of that process there's been a couple of people that have been introduced to us uh, completely out of left field, either because they've just moved to Australia, or in fact, one of them reached out after the last podcast and asked to volunteer with us in their evenings. And those people have turned out to be really amazing hires. And so there's this, this delicate balance we've had to strike between building a process and learning how to screen people that come to us, but also recognizing when a unicorn has fallen into our lap and making sure that we don't let them leave. Uh, and so it's a really, really challenging balance and one that we're still learning to, uh, still to find as the team grows more and more. There is so much going on with you and the team. Talk about the multidisciplinary approach that you guys are thinking through from building the product that people will love and eat every single day to building the software and the hardware to facilitate those products. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome question. I think on the multidisciplinary front, we always kind of had this really early vision that we kind of call like the round table vision, which is that 
you know, a, a general day of vow is just a series of problems that you're trying to solve. And we would hope that there's this kind of round table of people who have a background from material science through to like food analytical measures through to software engineering or mechatronics engineering. And you have this whole round table of people with different backgrounds and you plop a problem in the middle and they have this really diverse conversation about different approaches from different disciplines. And then negotiate as to which one is the best way to do it. I think that that's kind of where we where we started, but wasn't necessarily where we ended up to start off with. Yeah, we had a really, it was a really great idea that we had that we then basically completely forgot about and, and evolved into exactly <laughs> the type of organization that we never wanted to be, where we, just because it didn't really, we didn't really think about it. You add a couple more scientists and you have a science team and you have someone leading that team and they start to focus on science problems being science problems and engineering problems being engineering problems. And this went on for quite a while. And it got to the point, even when we were about 10 people, I remember James, our chief scientist, um, for ones one week said, I don't know what solution the engineering team are doing. And I was like, that is a team of two people. And we are a team of 10. Like, How on earth has this happened? And let alone happened so quickly and so early. And it became, it almost got, um, came to an even worse point when a lot of our goals in science and the biology were fundamentally limited by the need to have tools built for them with the support of engineers. And looking at all of this at a time uh, when the team was really starting to feel the stress and the strain of this, we're lucky enough to spend some time with our friends over in Inventia uh, and learn about their journey from a very similar set of problems of having these siloed science and engineering and manufacturing teams um, across, you know, in, in this multidisciplinary way. And they were kind enough to let us spend some time with them and learn exactly how they've uh, set this up and what's worked really well and what hasn't. And so we transitioned really quite uh, from this idea of having these functions as having these teams that are working together and have full ownership and autonomy over a problem. And it's up to them to deliver on that. And they'll often have people from two, three disciplines working together um, to solve this problem which VOW needs to solve. And that's completely changed the way that we've worked and has been so positive. And I'm, I'm confident is going to be the backbone of how we work for many, many, many years to come. Yeah, and it's way more fun. You know, like, again, you know, these teams come up with their own names and their own emblems and their own logos. And, you know, sometimes from a design background, that's painful. And other times I'm, I'm surprisingly delighted at the creativity of these teams. And, you know, they get their own T-shirts. And I think what we see is that as a result, it kind of celebrates the specific genius that different people take. So, you know, en engineers are embedded in each of these project teams and they're uniquely celebrated for what they bring and how they make our scientists kind of super scientists. And then, you know, the whole company gets exposed to our food inventors talking about the complexities of process engineering when you're scaling to meet millions of consumers from a benchtop process. Mm -hmm. Or on another day, they're, they're running a cooking class over Zoom. And it, it makes this whole idea that different disciplines is really inclusive and nothing feels quite out of reach for everyone, which wasn't necessarily the case for us in those early days with, with different silos. And we didn't really live in that reality for too long, thank goodness. But I think that the biggest outcome here about having these multidisciplinary teams is you genuinely realize that ideas can come from anywhere and it doesn't have to be from your discipline um, in terms of where you're coming from with your ideas. And that's been really, really powerful. Let's go deeper on how it all comes together in harmony. How do you think about building products that people will end up loving? That's a huge question. Uh, <laughs> I think you know, I'm going to break it down. And like, yeah, I'll break it down to a few areas. So I think that there's, there's really around like constraints, testing, how you optimize for, for innovation, and then how you think about building brands. So 
if you think about constraints, it's, it's all about playing with constraints. For instance, we, I went down this route where I thought, you know, we'll try and make product development or product innovation and in food a really scientific process and put a lot of rigor into the way that people ran iterations, kind of like you do in software development, where you, you break it apart into discrete tasks and then you iterate over time. And what I found is that if you don't constantly challenge what good is, you can optimize really well in the wrong direction. And so you often need to kind of stop and get the team to question what is it that we're trying to build and then go back to the drawing board and improve things that way. The other thing that we did is, you know, there's a mantra in the product team here, which is get embarrassed. And, you know, if you're not testing with consumers, the product fast enough, like as if you're not, if you're not embarrassed about the thing that you're putting out there, then you're not going fast enough. And so we've gotten really good at using platforms like Uber to start sending our prototypes to people literally in the vicinity of us, even under these conditions. Wow. And so, so much so actually that Uber put us on a whole new product called Uber Direct, which is, which is actually, actually a lot better than, than using the normal Uber platform. I think like, you know, the, the other key thing here is like, you don't want to over-optimize you know, there, there is a creative magic in, in making physical goods like food that you might not find in things like software. And that's no offense. You know, I, my background's in software, like no, no offense to people out there in the software world, but you know, I think in food, you kind of need to be both a combination of SpaceX and Willy Wonka at the same time. Mm. You know, you can't just have it be too scientific or too process driven. And then the, the, really the final thing here is you need to, you need to constantly be thinking about how you can build brands that are targeted and find unique ways of delivering that experience to people. So you've got this really kind of Willy Wonka style product innovation. You're able to test it with consumers super quickly. And then you're able to build brands that speak to people in a targeted and unique way. And I think that that's the recipe for building products that end up having people love them. I love that analogy of Willy Wonka, SpaceX. How do you balance as a team, the speed of a software team, and I guess the creativity of Willy Wonka especially in the context of perhaps how other food companies operate. I'd be super intrigued to understand how you think about why Val's operating system is different to, to potentially others. Uh, uh, for us at Val, we can, only, we can only achieve these fast iterations because we don't have the constraints of being a big and well-established food company. It's those companies don't want to place huge bets on, uh, the, or for them to place a huge bet on a new area, they need to be really, really, really certain that it is going to be a large market that people are going to accept. The fundamental premise of Vow as a company is in order to change the behavior of billions of consumers, we need to offer a really wide range of products that meet a really uh, each individual group in a given scenario where they are and provide them a better value proposition uh, than is delivered by an animal product or a plant-based product. In order for us to achieve that, we need to be providing and testing a huge number of things. And as Tim says, there is a lot of incremental improvement and refinement uh, but there is also that blue sky creativity that's equally important. For us to be successful, we have to match the technology, you know, the core cultured meat technology that enables sustainability with things that people are going to want to buy over any other type of protein. Um, and this is the foundation that we're building to get to that point. So to build a product that many people around the world will be eating, you have to change and reshape how they've been eating for centuries. As a thought experiment, do you believe in the idea that you give the customer what they want or are you going to tell them what they want? I think it's, I think it's extremely rare that customers talk to you in terms of exactly what they want. Um, <laughs> even if they do, like there's this huge signal versus noise problem. You know, meat eaters would just tell you that they want more animal meat. So instead, I think great product companies 
they look for broad social trends and then they transform those into brands that are meaningful for people. So, you know, food is becoming more and more like that. Take Oatly, for example, right? Like there was, there was no consumer out there, or if it was, it was a very small subset of consumers who were calling out for better oat milk. Like it wasn't really the, the, the trend in consumers at the time, but people were becoming more and more conscious about the impact of animal products and coffee culture itself was growing. And so I think that Oatly saw that there's this opportunity for them to take an existing product and focus really heavily on a on a coffee market, you know, it was really targeted towards baristas as a product. And then what they did is they built a whole series of content around that. And that's how they got their product brand off the ground by focusing on this social trend that existed to start off with and helping people realize that this is a better product or a better way to drink it. And then from there, once they had a foothold, could grow it into this multi-billion dollar brand that they are now. And in some applications, you know, that we found that just like, oh, it does just taste better than cow's milk but they didn't go about the route of trying to kind of shove it down people's throats or make it as a competitor to cow's milk, but something different altogether that focused on a, on a social trend and had a brand that focused on a social trend. Zooming out a bit, let's hold up the rear mirror and sort of think about what were some of the goals that you were trying to achieve last year and, and how did you go against them? So a lot of what we've been focusing on over the last year has been around the underlying biology is our whole premise as a company is in order to create that house of brands, in order to create these products that serve all these consumers, we need a range of ingredients that are unique to cultured meat. And those are going to come from a wide range of species, uh, form our library of cells. And so one of the first and most major goals is can we actually prove out that multi-species approach? Can we realistically grow cells from multiple species, even into small volumes of food? Uh, milestones last year was almost exactly a year ago now uh, when we demonstrated six species and a little cook up at Rockpool with Neil Perry, which was a, an incredibly exciting day at the end of an unbelievably long sprint to get there. But then once we had proved that out, a lot of it became about how do we then take that and scale it up? And some of those limits to scaling up were based on you just can't physically have scientists manipulating enough factors uh, to be able to learn quickly enough to take these to market or even take them into a small-scale manufacturing environment. Early on, I touched uh, right at the beginning, we had this idea that engineering was going to be this key uh, driver of this, is if you take some of these repetitive actions that are necessary to optimize your cells or your media and you automate them or you provide tooling to make them really, really efficient, you can make the science move much, much faster. You can test more hypotheses with the same amount of hands in the same amount of time, which means you can get closer and closer to bringing those to market with much, much less time and resources. And we're at this point now where you know, some of the core processes like cell line generation are operating on these predominantly robotic platforms where, where the most human step or the most intensive step is picking things up from one robot and moving them to the other robot. Uh, kind of mind-blowing for us. But over the last year, that was something, this whole idea of engineering and our R&D went from a hypothesis just to the core of how we work. We now have machine learning driving some of our most important science because of the data sets that we've built up over that time. Um, and we're now seeing that, you know, 10 to 1,000 times improvement in what a single scientist can do. And, you know, just the other week, uh, one of those wonderful moments when either Tim or I were even aware that it was happening is we had a, a fortnightly project showcase and one of our teams said, yeah, we had this feed step that was taking 30 minutes per sample. And so we just automated it and now we can feed 36 samples in 30 minutes. And so it was just a complete game changer to our ability to uh, execute on some of the experimental work uh, and some of the iterative improvement work that we're doing day to day. 
yeah, like I, I'll give another example. You know, one of the one of the onerous tasks in a regular wet lab is putting something under a microscope that you can take a photo of it and you take that photo and then someone has to analyze that photo to count how many cells were growing in that specific condition. And for us, you know, we got really, really good at image acquisition, which George was talking about earlier, kind of based on the original premise that we had in our kind of shotgun lab. And so we started all of a sudden having thousands of images that needed to be analyzed. And, you know, you've, you've got everyone kind of looking off in different directions, not wanting to be the person that's picked for that job because there's, there's nothing fun about it. And so James came up with an awesome idea to use Amazon's Mechanical Turk, basically farm out you know, thousands of these images and, and tweak the, the costing that will pay someone per image analyzed to get to a point where we were getting the results of that coming back accurately, which I call that kind of like semi-autonomous. And what Stanley looked at that from, basically Stanley looked at that and went, oh, that's a really great data set and use that as the basis to train a machine learning algorithm. And so as a result, no human needs to count these anymore because we've been able to create a custom algorithm to be able to scan those images and, and get that cell count out. And it's kind of just like, that's in a week's work for, for Stanley and James working together. Whereas, you know, if you told us this a year ago that this was something we had, it would blow our minds. It still blows my mind that we have it now. <laughs> well, to look at the other side, what was something harder than what you had anticipated? Well, I think it's important to note that, you know, that was some of the technical progress we've made. The other massive thing for us since the last time we spoke, and it's really been a number one focus, is just being product obsessed. You know, building that product development team and building that engine, and that has been that's been really challenging. Finding the right sort of skills for this kind of new wave of product development uh, has been hard, but it, the, the payoff is is super important. Like we've been talking about product every single day. And we've been shaping all of our company goals around producing delicious products. And the payoff is awesome. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had two scientists come up to me. They wrote this seven point description about their concerns around our need to not throw someone off when eating our first product through our messaging. And these are, it, was, it, was, it was not expected. And it was the most delightful message I could have received because it just shows that all of those challenges around finding the right people, getting them centered around this idea of, you know, we don't have to make what we've had before, we can make it better. And then really pushing those goals every single day to get them integrated into the minds of people who aren't necessarily in product. That's been super challenging. It was definitely way harder than, than we anticipated. We just assumed everyone would be massive foodies and then that would be driven itself, but, but it wasn't. When it, when it comes to stuff that's been way harder um, than I, or certainly I anticipated, um, the nature of being a founder is your role is constantly changing. When we last spoke to you, for both of us, being successful was taking on the most massive to-do list, running into about 15 problems with those tasks and going and solving them and coming back and saying, look at all the things I've done. What are all the things that you've done? And just do that over and over and over again. And we're now at this point where that is no longer how we're successful. And so it, it's kind of mind-blowing to me that at the start of this year when we we're setting up our production teams that we could produce enough you know, produce enough cultured meat to start to test some of these things in products. I was in the lab shoulder to shoulder with those people harvesting those cells because that was the most effective way to get that up and running. And now we're at a point where that reward system that I really drilled into myself over the course of 18 months, that me doing things personally was what success looked like. And that was how I got my dopamine hits. 
And then a company, a company grows past a point where me doing those things is a distraction for the things that I should be doing, which is enabling others around me. That was a really, really difficult adjustment personally. And it was one that took me several months uh, and a lot of mistakes in managing my own energy and my own time and my own priorities to start to get to a point where I'm doing a little bit better at that. This came out of complete left field and one that I was totally underprepared for how hard that adjustment was going to be. I think like we do something long enough to just not suck at it and then find people who are way better than us and then kind of rinse and repeat that cycle over and over again. And no one really tells you that that's what the first couple of years in a startup is going to be. And it's, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard because you're constantly playing in spaces where it's not your zone of genius. Like it's not where you can kind of bring something that you uniquely know into the world, but it's the most important thing for the business, but you don't know how to hire the team for that yet because you don't know it and you don't know it well enough. So you've got to go in there. You've got to make it off. You've got to suck at it and have people looking at you suck at it. And then you get a little bit better and then you get just good enough to know what the team is. And then you build it in and they look awesome. <laughs> and that's, that is the life of the founder. And, and that's what we sign up for. And, you know, it, but it's, it's challenging. And without that, I think over time, the maturity of a business allows you to start to kind of focus on your unique strengths as a person. But in these early days, it's, it's not there. So what's next for the team? The number one focus for us is getting ready to sell our first product with the goal of doing that by the next, end of next year. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that we have to do in order to get there. You know, there's constant product iteration cycles. We need to intimately involve Singaporean consumers in that journey. We'll be working with regulators to develop an extremely safe product that's legal to buy. There's scaling up, you know, preparing our process ready for manufacturing at that scale. And then really it's about then getting it in the hands of customers across Singapore and all of the bits of work that are involved in that. It's quite incredible. And so on that note, for the different skills, what are you sort of looking for over the next 12 months? So we're going to really be continuing to extend more into the non-technical uh, world as we start to prepare to launch and sell a product. One of the most important and pivotal skill sets is going to be around branding. And Tim's done a phenomenal job so far in building Val's company brand, something which I believe is going to be a core differentiator for us over the next few years. And then beyond that, there's all the other things which are needed to get in market. Manufacturing is obviously a huge one and pretty close to the top of that list, um, as well as regulation. And we're lucky enough to have some really, really good people uh, on the team and in consultants in these areas, but those are going <laughs> to have to go from a couple of people to full-fledged teams so that we can actually sell a product. Yeah, the other thing is, you know, we're obviously laser focused on selling a product in Singapore at the end of next year. But beyond that, we really need to start focusing on what our Horizon 2 products are and our pipeline of Horizon 2 products. And you know, this is going to be about connecting the depth of biology with the depth of food science to make foods that basically outpace anything that animal meats have across both sensory and performance attributes. And that's going to require a really unique set of people across all kinds of food science disciplines, but also that kind of inter, interdisciplinary side of things as well. So that we'll be building that team over time as well. The kind of the future food team. Look, thank you both so much for joining me on Wild Hearts. Once again, hopefully we'll have you back on uh, in the future and I can't wait to see from the sidelines how, how the team grows. Well, thank you so much, Mason. Good to speak to you again. Cheers, guys. Well, welcome back, Sam, to season two of Wild Hearts. I've just got off the phone with the Val founders and it was a pretty immense call. 
I wanted to see what have been the key reasons for your continued love for the business. Thanks, Mace, and great to be back. I would say the continued love is still that even though the cell ag or, or alternative protein more broadly landscape has just evolved um, enormously in the last two years or even three years, probably since I started really looking at the space, Bow is still the most compelling original and ambitious vision for me. We talk, you know, at Blackbird about a wild idea, the kind of idea that sort of sticks in your brain and is so compelling that magnetically it draws the best talent and best investors. And, and that gives you an unfair advantage or a higher chance of success in, in startups. And I really think that Vow is one of the iconic examples of that. And you can see it in the hiring they've done in the last two years, kind of against all odds, hiring from the very best of their competitors, the very best sort of higher research institutions and then on the software and, and ops side, you know, hiring from Plaid and from, from Lemonade, and from, from FinTechs and from, from corners of, you know, the startup ecosystem that don't necessarily scream or sell, sell base me. It, it, it is nonetheless the kind of ambitious mission that is attracting um, people to come and do their life's work. And I think yeah, just the, the continuing possibility that unfolds from the idea that you don't have to be constrained by 2% of the world species that humans have managed to domesticate, you know, conti continues to be original and compelling, despite there being you know, probably hundreds of cell-based protein companies now. Completely agree. And you can just hear how infectious their passion is throughout the episodes. Can you describe what your number one concern is with Val, or at least what it was at the seed round mm -hmm. and just shed an insight into how that's changed? Yeah. Well, there are probably two things, but I mean, really at the seed round, these were just two guys who were totally unqualified to kind of succeed, particularly against the competitors at that time, the more well-funded competitors you'd had at least a couple of years ahead of them, but they showed tremendous hustle and a very fresh and unique vision. And we wanted to give them a go. I think the wild heartedness of, of, of Tim and George um, and that wild idea has managed to, you know, attract the team, as, as I mentioned. So they've hired from Sheok, from Memphis Meets, which is now Upside. You've probably, I think, raised by some order of magnitude more than everybody else in, in, this, in this arena from Twist and 10X Gen Genomics. Just amazing talent they have managed. And, and so they've grown in two years from, from two people to 38 people now people have like uprooted their lives and moved from other parts of the world to, to join the mission so I now have no doubts that whatever it is the talent that they need to execute on the vision they'll be able to find them because it's sort of now not even about Tim and George it's it's about all these talented people who want to work with the other talented people within within Val to execute on this vision. so that has that was kind of a, probably the biggest risk at that point and I think that it has you know very significantly been de-risked yeah. probably this the, the second one which is it's it's one of those things that kind of catch up with you so you know two years ago it was still really controversial to even believe this was going to be a thing right I mean it was it was not legal anywhere for starters there weren't any kind of frameworks for how it would become legal and it wasn't even clear that people necessarily want it like two 
two and a half years ago, you know, Beyond still hadn't IPO'd. It was difficult to even get Beyond outside of Beyond Meats. I was going to say Beyond sort of Beyond Burgers products outside of the US. You know, they were so production constrained and, and you know, people were still talking then about fake meat and franken meat and whatnot. And, and I feel at this point, you know, in just two years, it's, it's now legal. In Singapore, you have at least three um, players who have raised and, you know, building up their production um, capability and will start selling to the public in the next two years. That is by far and away faster than I could have imagined back two years ago when it was still just unclear, honestly, that there would be a market for this because one, it was illegal and two, it wasn't um, necessarily a given that people would want to buy this. And I, I feel like that has been de-risked a lot. It's not completely without risk, right? But it has, st- it has been significantly de-risked from the seed round. Completely. And I mean, it's all sidetracked from that. So over the next year, what do you think will be some of the most exhilarating moments? What are you most excited for? Well, um, this, this round, this last round that they raised has just all been about ramping up production and nailing flavor. And I'm, I'm really excited that they have been thinking about flavor and the experience of eating food so early because a lot of other cell-based companies have left it too late to consider these things. They were just very focused on building muscle, building more muscle, getting the cost down without sort of necessarily making taste of as much a first class, first class citizen. When at the end of the day, that's what you're selling. You're selling something that's hopefully very yummy as well as better for the planet. Um, And so to really improve on taste, you have to, you essentially have to kind of work out the periodic table of what makes something yummy. And that's what they have been doing. And that requires high throughput, which is very hard to do if you're doing things manually. And so their early investments in automation and machine learning and essentially liberating scientists from doing quite manual repetitive tasks and kind of getting robots to do that or software to do that where possible. I think that is really paying off. So to answer the question, I think the exhilarating points are going to be when hopefully a couple of months time from now, we're sort of producing enough quantities that we are iterate weekly on flavor and doing sort of dozens of tastings a week. And at that point of time, a broader group of people can actually experience this product and give us feedback. You know, I think all startups long for, for, for customer feedback and it is maybe one of those categories where it's a little slower to get customer feedback. So that's going to be really exciting. Before the end of this year, there'll be like, you know, dozens of people, hopefully, who will have tasted a Vow food product, hopefully loved it. And that will, I guess, provide a beacon to, to the future of, of, of what the first product will be or, and, and what the sort of house of brands or, or suite of products might be after that. I mean, that'll be one of the most exciting, get your product in the hands of customers moments uh, ever. I mean, t- totally. For, for me, it's like spine tingling, right? To, to, to think about that, that kind of first moment and to, to sort of know what went into making that, that possible. Yeah. So in November 2018, you wrote a blog post called Welcome to the Third Agricultural Revolution. How do you think your thesis has evolved over the last two years since making a few investments in the space? What continues to excite you and, and what hasn't turned out? Wow. I mean, I absolutely could not have predicted like how quickly and how big the sector would get in such a short amount of time. I mean, just so much money and therefore activity has happened sort of, you know, 
up, down, left, right, across every axis, you know, back then, you know, it was really kind of, you know, plant milks and, you know, cell-based beef burgers was kind of the extent of it. And, and now there is just, you know, uh, across the, across the milks and there's everything from plant to cell and then, you know, cheese to more, you know, other dairy, dairy products. And I think the thrust of that kind of blog post was really that what didn't make sense to me was how every cell-based meat company was essentially a full stack vertically integrated company that was doing all the science from cell line isolation, media optimization, cell culturing through to the food science. I, does it taste good? Does it have the right sort of dietary composition, et cetera, through to marketing and distribution. And it struck me that that was, I mean, it's a hugely capital intensive exercise to do that. And that would not scale and so there were going to be opportunities to create valuable companies all up and down the stack that has definitely happened there are many companies now just tackling kind of each of those limbs and I would say what I'm probably most excited about at this stage is more of those enabling technologies but ideally ones that don't have all their bets placed on just serving the cell ag or cell-based meat market, simply because I think the volume, the timing of when volume will come is a little uncertain. And, and as a startup, you just need, um, you need your fate not totally be to be in the hands of, of another wave kind of reaching a crest at, at precisely the right moment for you. And we are seeing that on the sort of biofabrication, just to think of one side of things is there are, there are definitely those opportunities where they're, they're sort of ser- serving all of Symbio, if that makes sense, not just, not just cell-based meat. What am I less ex- excited to invest in? I think the kind of breakthrough venture-style returns are less likely to happen from where there isn't a clear technology breakthrough or advantage where essentially you're investing in a brand. I think it, d- it would obviously depend on the fund size and the particular product, but I would probably not be interested in investing in another cell-based chicken company or uh, I, I just can't see given the, f- the, the busyness of the field, the level of capital that's gone into it, I can't see enough differentiation to make me confident that, yep, I've picked a winner here. I, I don't know that I'm, I'm sort of in that, biz- in that business of, of trying to pick the winner in cell-based chicken, for example. When we first invested two years ago, it, the regulatory landscape was completely non-existent in cell-based meat. How has the regulatory framework evolved over the last two years? Has it changed your expectations? Is it moving as fast as you'd like to see it? What has been really pleasing is that there's just been overall more clarity about what you can do and where you can do it. And Singapore has sort of come forward as the first place where you can legally sell cell-based meats and they have a framework and guidelines that start that startups can work towards to build up what a regulator would need to see to approve a product for sale in that market. And so that gives a whole bunch of certainty to startups that as they kind of keep developing their products, they will have somewhere to sell them. And they're developing all of their systems, you know, manufacturing processes, et cetera, to be compliant with that regime. That's like a two-year sort of body of work for a startup at the minimum. So it's great that we know that for at least one jurisdiction in, in, in the world. And the US has, you know, worked on its own guidelines to, to give a lot more clarity to startups as well. 
we don't have that level of clarity in Australia. And what I worry about for startups in, in our ecosystem is that in the face of uncertainty about when they can bring a product to market in Australia, yeah. they will choose to offshore because there's already so much uncertainty in startups. The ones that you have control out of, you will have control over, you will, will try to minimize. And so I think it's, you know, it's a completely predictable outcome if you know, Vow or, or, or other cell-based startups offshore, just in order to remove that risk from, from um, their plans. And what that means for Australia long-term is this whole new agricultural industry, which we believe will end up being a large industry, is not an export industry for Australia. It's an, it's an industry where we're consumers, not producers. And, and I think that's a net loss for, for us. And so I think even though it'll probably be a tiny market in the beginning due to production volumes, it would, it would be good to have um, both state and federal government sort of work towards a framework where where these products could come to market and it's just a conversation we have to have right there will um, be farmers who feel that they will be affected by by this change and and supply chain and 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 all the rest of it and so that that all takes time to work through so there are many big problems in the world right now but i just i just worry that if this is not on the radar of any minister or any um, part of government we just won't have this industry five or 10 years from now in Australia. One of those problems is feeding the world sustainably. So, Yeah, but I see this as, I mean, there's that, but I, think, I see this as like a, a, you know, a, tech, a technology. Do you want to be a net importer or a net exporter of a kind of technology? And I think I'd always rather be an, an exporter of technology. Right. And I think Australia has an opportunity because of its sort of brand and reputation for very self-safe healthy food it is already a food um, exporter it is a it's an amazing opportunity to build on that albeit in a different domain but if we do nothing it will pass us by you're here policy makers <laughs> reach out to sam or maybe not what have i done <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you so much sam um my pleasure thanks so much mason Thank you so much for tuning in to the latest episode of Wild Hearts. We'd be super grateful if you gave the episode a review or shared with your friends or colleagues. Uh, it'll help us surface Val's mission to bring the world a new category of food. And on that note, I'll see you next month.